Hello and good morning. You are listening to Tech Talk on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am your host, Aryeh Lightstone. You can listen to us on jmintheam.org or nachumsiegel.com. As always, we are proud to be sponsored by our friends at Adorama Camera, more than just a camera store. Please check them out online at adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. So uh, as uh, we've gotten to know each other a little bit, the listeners and myself, uh, it's interesting to try to figure out uh, the pieces that are responded to and, and the level of response and what is of interest and what's of a little bit less interest and what's of a little bit more interest. And had the pleasure of having a show um, a couple weeks back now at, uh, at uh, what's called the IJED, uh, which was a conference, an education conference with many, many, many Jewish day schools in Yeshivot. Uh, from really around the country, uh, there were even there were representatives from various different organizations from around the world, and we had a pl- uh, you know the pleasure and privilege of doing what I would call a speed round in the Avichai sponsored um, digital learning cafe, and uh, we had a chance to speak to uh, Rachel Abrams from Avichai, and we had a chance to speak to Nikki Newfield from a company called Jewish Interactive, and had a chance to speak to uh, the fellow from Kamarbara. Lots of Lots of positive conversations and lots of excitement. And I got numerous texts and tweets about the guests that we're going to have on for us today um, because of both the uh, eloquence that he described what was going on, but also because many people were passionately interested about the concept of education, what it looks like today, and please God, what it'll look like tomorrow. And uh, many were curious about hearing from somebody who's been both in the trenches and has the opportunity to really be a visionary in terms of seeing what education looks like moving forward. And there were lots of comments saying, okay, so we got a glimpse or perhaps a taste of what this ed is going to look like. Now let's drill down a little bit further. Let's find out a little bit more and let's figure out whether this is pie in the sky or if it's realistic. So uh went back to the drawing board, found the the top guest from uh, from that show, although all the guests were spectacular. And we have the privilege of having with us today for hopefully a full show, Rabbi Elchanan Weinbach. Are you there, Rabbi Weinbach? I am. Good morning, Aryeh. Good morning, and, and, and thank you for being on. And a special shout-out to, uh, to our engineer extraordinaire, as always, ZK. Um, so thank you for joining us uh, all the way from hopefully sunny Philadelphia. It's, uh, we, we hope that uh, eventually it's going to be spring, which might eventually lead to summer. Um, but uh, so, Rabbi Weinbach, you know, you, you've been the principal um, of, of several schools. You've been a head of school uh, and really a visionary in, in so many different um components of education, formal and informal. Can you just walk us through why you're involved with education in the first place? Yeah, that's really a, it's a, it's a fundamental question. I appreciate your, your giving me a chance to open up by discussing that. Uh, yeah, part of, uh, you know, on a certain level, part of it is that that's what my family's always been involved in. My father was a high school principal at Yeshiva University High School at MTA for many years at Central uh, they were involved in the summer camp business. So I was exposed to education, both formal and informal, early on. Um, and that certainly had an influence. Uh, another influence was that my own personal high school education was a very disappointing and difficult experience uh, for a variety of reasons, Not the, both the culture of the school, not the material that they were putting across, but the culture of what I experienced at MTA, as well as the fact that for a student with ADD in those days, um, there was no response. There were no modifications. It was just a very, very, very difficult experience. And um, I was really determined at a certain point in my life to come back into the system and make a difference. And I really tried to, on the one hand, follow in the footsteps of my father in terms of his uh, wanting to be as inclusive as possible and giving giving kids a chance, and on the other hand, to make the experience everything that it really could be for for students. So you you really come into education not as really a professional, although you certainly are a professional, but really as a passion. And there's a there's a drive to. Um, fix some of the challenges that you experienced as a student and and you're able to see it if you will both on the inside and the outside at that point in time so to me that's uh 
that's interesting because you know it's it's nobody nobody said Jewish education is easy, uh, not for the students, not for the teachers, and certainly not for the the heads of schools and the principals. Um, yeah, that dual perspective that you're identifying um, has shaped a lot of what I've done. Yes. Okay, uh, and and walk us through if you don't mind, or walk the audience through because I have the privilege of of having known you now for for quite a while and uh, and seen your literally legion of uh, of fans uh, a lot from camp and certainly a lot from schools and and it's to me is remarkable um, that be they students now 15 years later who are 25 years later on your hockey team or teachers uh, as recently in LA or Philadelphia or in uh, Elizabeth. Uh, or Miami, uh, all all speak of your passion and creativity uh, and sensitivity almost above all else. So that that's that's pretty exciting. Um, so walk us through. I just listed off some cities that most people are familiar with. You you want to take us on a on a brief biographical tour? I'll take you on a brief biographical tour. Um, I grew up in the summer camp business, so I spent all my summers at Camp La Vie, and I went to MTA for high school and to Yeshiva University. Graduated from there with a master's in smicha. Um, I had a significant tension in my life of whether or not to go into the rabbinate or to go into education. And uh, my thinking was that it's easier to back into education than it is to back into the rabbinate. So I actually started in the rabbinate. I spent six years full-time in the rabbinate in both White Plains, New York, and Newport News, Virginia. And uh, I then moved I transitioned into education. I had a part-time shul, which became, which grew into the Highland Lake Shul, which is now thriving in Miami. And I began to work at Hillel there as a teacher. I moved on as an assistant principal at Hebrew Academy in Miami, and then moved back up and uh, bought a home in Elizabeth, New Jersey, so that I could further my uh, children's education in a way which I felt was appropriate. I spent five years at Hillel in Deal, where the first year I was an assistant principal to Dr. Kalman Stein, who's at Frisch, and then after that I was principal for four years. Spent five years at JEC subsequently in Elizabeth, where I was principal as well, and principal there of the upper school. And then uh, I hiked across the country to Los Angeles, California, to become head of school of the Shalhevet School, where I stayed for two years. And uh, in that time, made an assessment about the financial sustainability of um, the school, which was a K through 12, and we ended up closing everything but the high school, and the high school is now thriving, so that's very gratifying. And uh, recently, I spent uh, I spent uh, three and a half years as the head of school of Kohelet Yeshiva High School here in Philadelphia, and uh, I am still working in something called Project Kodachrome, which is a nonprofit which um, spun off from Kohelet and looks into alternative school models, and in particular our largest project is the McCorroat Project, which, Arya, you're familiar with, and which we were showing off at the conference, the IJ conference, um, a couple of weeks ago. Correct, and, and that received a tremendous amount of acclaim and, uh, and excitement, as did Altalia. You know, just being in that cafe, uh, the Avichai-sponsored cafe, seeing sort of new things, I think it was exciting. You know, it's, uh, I, I yep. think I mentioned when I kicked off that show that it, it, there's all, for whatever reason, there's cynicism involved in so many different Jewish ed, uh, uh, organizations. Jewish education, unfortunately, pervades parts of it as well. At least for the two and a half days of that conference, there seemed to be a camaraderie and sort of a veil against cynicism. And there, there was a freedom to dream. You're, you're a dreamer almost wherever you are. Uh, and, uh, and for whatever reason, the cynics don't hold you back so much. But I felt at least within that conference, there was a chance even for people who were hesitant to vocalize some of the things that they would talk about. The opportunity was certainly there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so, okay, so tell us, tell us if you don't mind, um, some of the things that, that, that Rabbi Elchanan Weinbach brings from an educational perspective that are unique and, uh, and perhaps different. And, and, and if you wouldn't mind, also let the audience know in terms of your positioning and, and role in terms of the independent school world, which I know that you do play a fairly significant mm-hmm. role in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I've tried to bring um, the outsider perspective, not only from the sense of somebody who, as we discussed, just my own personal experience sort of made me an outsider in terms of um, the way that I related to schools, having not been successful in school. But uh, I've also become very involved in the independent school world. And the independent school world, which is sort of, I guess, the easiest way to say it is sort of a private school world outside of the Jewish community, 
the independent school world brings its own perspective in um, in terms of its professionalism and the way that they um, have done a really good job of using the tools that are out there for recruitment, the tools that are out there for affordability, for fundraising. It's a different it's a different approach. There's no Hamishness to it. And listen, our schools have a Hamish element to them that are very important, and it creates a lot of warmth. It doesn't translate well always into financial sustainability. It doesn't always translate well into professionalism. So I've had a certain exposure outside the independent school world that has helped to uh, to shape my perspective on that. Um, the other thing that that's really brought to the table uh, for me is that when it comes to financial sustainability, um, I've been ringing the alarm for a while now about Listen, everybody knows it's becoming too expensive to send your kids to school. There's some process going on. But one of the things that I brought from learning how to analyze schools and their financial situation and consulting with people in the independent school world about this is um, a sense of what it takes on a long-term basis to get the Jewish educational system to sustainability, and that is a significant mountain to climb. Um, so I, I think that... Those perspectives um, have helped fuel a third real interest of mine, and that is how do we make kids, give kids the opportunity to be more successful educationally, and that is in, that definitely involves allowing them to be more self-directed, and allowing them to be more self-directed involves finding ways to use technology to enhance their education and give them educational options that they wouldn't otherwise have. There's a certain percentage of kids in every school that are going to be successful. It doesn't matter where you drop them. Uh, my concern is with the bottom half, and uh, I think that we are not, as a rule, doing all that well with the bottom half. We're doing better than we used to. We're actually paying attention to them, and there are certainly organizations that are paying uh, you know, attention to them, but uh, I think that there's a tremendous amount of room for success with the bottom half, at least, if not more, of our Jewish school populations, especially at the middle and most significantly at the high school level. And uh, that's, that's an area where I've paid a lot of attention to and done a lot of thinking about. Right, and you're, you're really saying a bunch of different things, and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to to speak about all of them mm-hmm. um, in a degree of depth. You're, you, well, Before I get to that, I'd like to remind our listeners that they are listening to Tech Talk on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, I'm your host, Arye Leitzen. We have a guest this hour, Rabbi Elchanan Weinbach, uh, educator and, and visionary um, in terms of the business side and the practical side of education uh, with technology sort of being uh, the chut hamashulash, the, the string that sort of holds all of those together and will weave us towards the future. You're listening to us on jmintheam.org or nachamsegel.com. If you haven't yet downloaded the Nachum Siegel app, I strongly recommend that you go to the app store and uh, and you do that today. Uh, as always, we are proud to be sponsored by our friends at Adorama Camera, more than just a camera store. Please check them out online at adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. And before we get much further with Rabbi Weinbach, and I want to focus on sort of the three prongs, affordability, uh, education, and sort of how how we change a system that seems so hesitant and reticent perhaps to change, if we can sort of talk about those three things. I, I want to remind the listeners out there that uh, you can certainly be in touch with me. Twitter has been sort of the way that you've mostly reached out, and, and feel free to continue to do so about this show or about any other show, uh, at Lightstone A. You can follow me on Twitter, at Lightstone A, and uh, find out more about Tech Talk here on JM and the AM on the Nachum Siegel Network. So, Rabbi Weinbach, I leave it to you. Which uh, which direction would you like to speak about first? Um, I, I think the role of educational technology in both improving education and sustainability. That's really where my thoughts are most focused right now. Um, so, if I can, I'd like to address that a bit. Please. Um, we, we have two crises, one of which is more obvious and one of which is less obvious in the Jewish educational world. The one which is more obvious is the financial sustainability. The one which is less obvious is that, you know, our goal is always with our kids is to give them the best education possible. The challenge of doing that is that our kids' needs have differentiated tremendously. So whether it's the increased awareness of or presence of, it's a separate discussion, but of 
learning needs and kids who need to be addressed in a, in a non-traditional way in terms of their learning, or for that matter, at the other end of the spectrum, kids who have become so intellectual and so advanced that it's hard for them to, um, it, it's hard to satisfy their intellectual curiosity and give them what they want out of Torah learning and out of just general learning. So, yeah, so the audience has become even more diverse, again, whether we're either more aware of it today mm-hmm. uh, or just in general that they've uh, sort of gravitated I, I think, in that direction. I, I, I would argue strongly that our smartest kids are smarter than they've ever been. Um, you know, and I'll just give you a simple reason why that is and then, and then come back to what I was saying. When I was a kid, if I was into baseball, so I'd read all the – I'd read a couple of books or I'd read whatever there was, you know, in terms of box scores, and I'd keep track of the standings. And if I had the memory for it, I'd memorize people's batting averages. Now if a kid's into baseball, they have an entire world that's open to them that, you know, whether it's sabermetrics and understanding it on a mathematical level, the level of analysis is sharper than it used to be the level of sophistication intellectually that's been brought to bear on the game of baseball, just as an example. A kid who's into baseball now in a serious way, a kid who's passionate about baseball now, is using a far greater set of real-world skills than when I was growing up. So in terms of their, you know, as much as we have trouble sometimes getting them focused, what they're passionate about, they're passionate about in a way which makes them smarter, and certainly more real-world prepared than they have ever been. So as that aside, we really have a differentiation that's really never been there before, uh, a much greater differentiation. Um, We also have serious economic pressures on the Jewish educational system. The The last hit that we took financially in the last, you know, the last great financial adjustment, almost destroyed the Jewish educational system, and um, those those adjustments come every seven or eight years, more severe, less severe, and um, what we need to be bracing for, and this is something which I've shared in the independent school world also, and they're also concerned about this is, well, what happens if 15% of the money drops out of the system tomorrow? Which isn't a huge adjustment. Now, 15% is not a huge number. The last, the last hit took at least that out of the system. But what if we lost 15% of the money in the system tomorrow? What would schools do? So I asked one leader in the Jewish educational world who works for a nonprofit, I asked him this question, and his response was, well, we'll just cut back on certain services that we used to not provide. Well, the problem with that is that if you cut back on those services, those kids are, at the very least, not going to be served educationally to the degree that they need to be served, or at worst, will leave the system. And many of them will leave the system. And they will end up going to either public school districts that satisfy their needs or going to private schools that can satisfy their educational needs. So the idea that we're somehow going to skim, skimp on certain services that have now become integral to the education that we deliver we can do that, and we might be saying 15% of the money, but at the very least, we're driving a lot of kids out of the system. At the very worst, it's going to create a cycle which will pull even more kids out of the system. So if 15% of the money disappeared tomorrow, we would have an, uh, an almost irredeemable problem, except that fortunately there is a way to address that problem and improve education. And that way is through educational technology. Now, I have to say from the outset, okay, here's a term we're not going to use. We're not going to talk about online education. We're not going to talk about online education for the following reason. Because lots of people in the professional world have done online education to get their continuing credits, whether they're lawyers or doctors or anything else. And there's a lot of really bad online education out there. Online education, which means that the student adult or otherwise, the student goes onto a computer and gets their learning through the computer without any teacher involvement of, in any meaningful way is not going to improve education. It's just not. There's a very, very small, small percentage of kids who can learn that way. Right, and I think what you're doing now I think is so important because 
a lot of times people talk with buzzwords without defining what they are, and people wind up with preconceived notions in terms of what that is based upon an experience. When, when you're talking about mm-hmm. technology, uh, you know, almost imagine, you know, somebody, um, uh, for example, the, the pediatrician's office that, uh, that my kids go to now has all of their devices, um, carry all of the charts. It stays on their devices, mm-hmm. and everything's beamed wirelessly. So if you were to suggest that seven years ago while the technology existed in terms of the tablets and the wireless component existed as well, you'd be petrified about taking your kids there. But things change and evolve very quickly. It's important to always be updating and being specific in terms of the terminology. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've found when speaking about any type of technology, but education technology especially, um, people people have very preconceived notions, very difficult to uh, disavow, dis- dis- uh, disavow them, I guess, of their beliefs. Right. Right. Uh, so so that's you're 100% correct, and that's why we're really, from the start, we're not talking about online education. What we're going to talk about, for the most part, is what's called blended learning. Blended learning means that a teacher and student in a classroom setting are taking advantage of technologies that will improve the education of the student and increase affordability. So let me, let me sort of give you an idea of how this would work. Okay. Please. We have, uh, let's say, we're going to say that our class size here, for argument's sake, we're going to say there are 24 kids in the class. Teacher gets up in front of the class and they're teaching. They're trying to be as engaging as they can. Sometimes there's some chavrusa time. Okay. The amount of time in which the teacher is interacting uniquely with a student is very limited. The teacher has 24 students to manage and educate, and therefore they're not able to spend a, a lot of time having direct interaction with specific students about what the student is interested in. So, for example, 10 kids raise their hand to discuss a point four of them get called on and then the teacher has to move on. So there's not a lot of contact time from teacher to student, but the teachers do the best that they can. This is certainly not the teacher's fault. This is the way the system is set up. Okay. Well, let's imagine for a moment that we could reduce the size of the class so that it was eight kids talking to the teacher. The teacher was working with only eight kids at a time then the teacher would be able to have much higher quality interactions with the students, obviously. That's the advantage of having a smaller class. Right. So here's one way that it work, could work with blended learning. You have, you have your 24 students in the class. Each of them has different needs in terms of, and I'll use Jewish studies in particular for the moment, they have different needs in terms of their ability to acquire textual skills. And there's a certain amount of information that they need in order to be able to appreciate the deeper commentaries and the deeper analysis. Most of the skill development and, for that matter, the basic information, the student doesn't need the teacher for. That's information and basic skills that they could acquire through the use of a computer program. So now you have your 24 students. And instead of teaching to 24 of them all the time, you've got, at any given time, eight of them are working on their skills online. Eight of them are developing, they're deepening their basic knowledge by reading through commentaries and being guided through a certain amount of material. And eight of them are working with the teacher. Yes, so tell me, please, Rabbi, how are they guided through? I understand the eight who are working individually. Almost anybody who's been to a school today has seen the gross math lab or the reading labs. Right. or the, There are lots of great things that are out there for that. So mm-hmm. I, I get and see how that could work, and I, I'd like you to tell us a little bit of how that's developed. What, and I get the eight kids that are working with the teacher. I certainly get that and see the advantages to both of those. And I, if you were to tell me that blended is two stations, I'd be pretty cool with that. I think that you know 12 is better than 24. Um, mm-hmm. explain or illustrate for the audience a little bit uh, in more detail, please, uh, what's going on with the third group of eight. Okay, so educationally what's been 
the, a methodology which has been shown to have tremendous yield in terms of having kids take responsibility for their own learning, being creative, and being more engaged is project-based learning. What project-based learning basically says is you put in front of the okay. kids, here is a problem to be solved, here is a situation to be analyzed, and with some guidance on the side, guide by the side from the teacher, they are working as a group of two groups of four, group of eight, however you break it down. They are working on whatever project-based learning they're doing. So you have eight kids working on skills. You've got eight kids who are working on something you know, in a project-based sort of way. And you have eight kids who are getting more direct attention from the teacher. And, again, which eight kids – sorry, let me back up. So you have those three groups of eight. Now, let me add an important element. In any grouping of students, you're going to have – you're going to have a need to differentiate. Not all kids are going to be the same. It doesn't matter how you group them or how large your school is. In this system, you can put a wider range of students into the same room who can benefit from each other and feel, especially in the case of students who need more skill development and more attention, who often feel they're in the dumb or loser class, you can put all these kids in one room because with the exception of an initial activity where the teacher brings everybody together to frame the lesson and a closing activity in order to somehow or other wrap up the lesson, you're really running three classes of eight at the same time. And because of that, you're able to meet, you're able to differentiate in a way that you could never do in a normal classroom. And in the case of schools that are running smaller classes, let's say running a regular's class and an honors class, you can now run one class. You can it's run one even, class all you can in run one room one class, and, and right there obviously is All 24 savings. kids and you're just differentiating for them. The kids who are more advanced in their textual skills will spend less time on tech skills more time on commentaries, more time on higher-level type thinking and analysis. The kids who need more time on textual skills will spend more time on textual skills. Everybody is getting what they need in one room with one teacher. They're getting it better than they would have. They're getting more individual contact with the teacher, and you only have to run one class. So if you are in some major metropolitan area where all the classes are full, which I imagine there are such things. Sure. So this is maybe less compelling, although I'll tell you in a moment it might be compelling anyway. In other words, the economics of it are less compelling. The education is compelling no matter where you are. Right. Education is going to work in any grouping. But economically, if you're in an out-of-town school where you've got 40, 60, 70 kids in a school, you can't possibly run classes of 24 because... Those kids are just on such widely divergent levels. You'd have to run them across grades. You'd have to, well, you can. Because when you're using a blended learning approach, grade matters less, and certainly background level and intellectual level, you're able to differentiate in a way which you weren't able to differentiate before. So for schools that are in markets that they're packing their seats, they're going to get a better education the teacher is going to have more contact time and be able to be more of a mashpia, more of an influence on the kids because they're not tackling 24 kids at once. They're tackling four to eight kids at a time. For the schools who are outside of a major metropolitan area, for whom class sizes are an issue and they've got lots of empty seats, their economics improve dramatically. So you, you have, in theory, better educational outcomes as well as superior economic situations. Right, and that's why this is a unique moment, because the financial drivers and the educational drivers are matched. There was a time I could have, I could have said the same thing to you about education, more or less could have said the same thing about educate, the educational side a couple of years ago. The financial side, you know, the pressure, the pressure wasn't there eight years ago, and it is now. But the fact that the education and the financial arguments are both so strong and so compelling, this is an un a remarkably unique time and opportunity. And again, at the risk of sounding like, you know, I don't want to sound like I keep presenting doomsday scenarios, but a very simple way to think about it is 
If 15% of the money comes out of the system, what are we going to do? Right. What, what, what is the survival system, plan? With this type of system, and, yeah. right, what's your survival plan? With this type of system, you improve your economics, and I'm using the number 24 because it sounds like a really manageable number. There are plenty of schools with 30 kids in a classroom, and if you only have 24 kids in a classroom and you can go to 36 kids in a classroom in a blended-type learning environment, you also help your economics tremendously. The reason we don't go to larger class sizes in general is, unlike in college, where you don't have to manage the behavior of kids in school because they don't want to be there, they're not going to be there. In high school, they're there, and you're stuck with them, and you have to manage this number. So there's only so many kids you can manage at any given time. Well, you can manage a lot more of those kids if you're able to slice your grouping into thirds. You can manage a lot more kids. And this is not dissimilar to sort of a base measure-style approach where you have a show, a couple of Sholem who go around, they answer the questions of any of the students that they may have and act as guides by the side, and then you bring the kids together en masse for whatever the shear is, whatever the presentation is. You know, there's, there's some group dynamic as well where there's a shear, there's a class. And and what are the fundamentals? It sounds here like we're relying, not relying, but we're encouraging the kids to be much more um, involved in their own education, which to mm-hmm. me sounds like a good thing. Um, wh- what about the students? Uh, you know, I can see how the top students, and going back to the very beginning of the discussion, so you, you obviously have a major focus also on, on the second half of students, not necessarily mm-hmm. the top students. I see why mm-hmm. a top student would be flying. What's the motivation or why does this potentially work better for, forget even the bottom third, maybe the middle third? Okay. So besides the fact that they still have a school to go to because economically their school is going to survive when it loses 15% of its money, I mean, let's just leave that aside for a second as to why right. it's great for the middle third. They actually still have a school to go to. It's great for the middle third, so to speak, because these are students who also would like and would benefit from more contact with the teacher directly. So instead of being part of the herd of the the middle eight kids in a group of 24 that the teacher is trying to manage at any given time so that the amount of contact time, the amount of time that their questions are being answered and their issues are being addressed is minimal, when you get it down to a group of eight with a teacher, you're now, you know, you're dealing with it's almost like a Kira situation. You've got eight kids with the teacher. They're learning. The teacher can address that middle-level kid who wasn't getting two-thirds of the – it wasn't getting all the teacher's attention anyway. They weren't getting a third of the teacher's attention when there were 24 kids to be managed at the same time. Now that there's only eight kids to be managed at the same time, but for a third of the time, but they're getting a lot more attention, they come out way ahead, and the studies all back this. The studies all back this in terms of the educational effectiveness of a rotational model. It's called a rotational model. The kid in the middle is getting a better education and more contact time with the religious role model because they're in this type of a setup. Okay, and this is critical to explain, I think, to the audience and to everybody who's listening there, is that the second we, we go into the education technology component or anything else like that, it sometimes gets to, oh, okay, so obviously the, the teachers are on the sidelines because we use the word guide on the side, <clears throat> but it doesn't mean guide on the side. It doesn't mean that they're relegated to the sidelines. I've heard articulated, and I'm asking you this pretty directly, Rabbi Weinbach, mm-hmm. is the teacher less important when using oh, this level of technology or more? Much more important because they're not herding cats anymore. They're actually interacting with kids more, are able to focus on individual kids more. They are more important to the individual kid. They are less important in terms of their classroom control and discipline because there's less to control and discipline. But no teacher goes into teaching to be a classroom control person. They're going to teaching for that. That's not what we really want from our teachers. That's just we're stuck with that. So the teacher becomes much more important because they're more involved in the life of each student. They're able to more directly reach each student. They become much more empowered and much more important in the educational process because of this, because of just working in a blended learning situation. 
Now, one of the things that people have used for me, and I don't mean to take you off topic. In fact, taking you off topic, I'm going to go back and remind everybody that uh, you're listening to Rabbi Elchanan Weinbach, a uh, special guest here on the Tech Talk show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, you're listening to me as well. I'm your host, Ari Lightstone. You've been listening to us or can listen to us on jmintheam.org or nachumsegel.com. As always, we are proud to be sponsored by our good friends at Adorama Camera, much more than just a camera store. Please check them out online at adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. I will take a moment to encourage all of our audience out there when you're looking for educational tools, um, be them tablets or laptops or Chromebooks um, and various different networks, Adorama Camera has a full selection of all of those, much more than just a camera store. You should go check them out. Um, they really are excellent in that regard. Um, so as I was taking you off topic, Rabbi Weinbach, and, and appreciating and valuing the position of a teacher even more in this circumstance, mm-hmm. is it possible that we also, in, in blended learning or education technology, not only take away part of the herding cats mentality, but take away to an extent part of the tedium involved with teaching either the oh, prep or the post? Absolutely. There's nothing more tedious than teaching skills and grading quizzes on skills, and all of that is handled by the technology. So just on that alone, the teacher has been freed up considerably. Yeah, it'll take a tremendous amount of the tedium out. Okay, so and, the te- and, once, yeah, it, and it, once the tedium is removed, in theory that teacher potentially could work even more periods during the day actually taking less time. Uh, potentially that's true. Maybe. Um, I think that people generally underestimate as a former full-time teacher who had their period load increased, or actually I should say I took the money so that I could teach more periods <laughs> after my first year of teaching. It's incredibly grinding. The day okay. is incredibly grinding. So what you will get by removing the tedium is it will it, those teachers are now going to be interacting with kids in the halls. They're going to be interacting and involved in their lives more because they're not being worn down the same way. In a situation where you wanted to maximize financially, in theory, yes, it is true that you might be able to squeeze an extra period a day out of a teacher. And you know, so again, that's the interplay of what are the financial pressures versus the educational pressures. Okay, I, I certainly get and understand and appreciate that. Um, what, in terms of implementation, this is all new. A lot of the words that you've explained, I, I appreciate you explaining them. I appreciate you articulating them. I'm sure it's not just me. I'm positive it's our audience as well. And uh, I'd have to imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that, uh, that, that seeing ultimately is believing in mm-hmm. this case, that... Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we can talk about it. It's, it's probably applying it and, 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 and feeling it, getting the experience, the feedback from the teachers, administrators, and most importantly, the students. You get to really see a different type of education. But I, I didn't mean to digress in that regard. I wanted to ask you, how, how do you get this into the schools? How, how does it work? How do you change the culture of a school uh, to begin to do something differently? Okay. Doing this well costs a lot of money on the front end. Costs very little on the back end because once it's up and running, it's up and running. But doing it well costs a lot of money on the front end. And besides the educational, the people with the educational know-how, of which our community is blessed with many, many of them, that's not our challenge. The reality is that funders and foundations who are looking to save Jewish education need to spend the money that is necessary to produce full curriculums in Tanakh, in Gemara, certainly in Jewish history, Dinim, in all these areas, money has to be spent to produce these curriculums. I have a different way of addressing this problem as well, besides the, which includes the blending learning component, another way that schools could do this and which ultimately would allow the implementation to be less cost-intensive would be to um, to have students learning all of their subjects in a more integrated way as opposed to here's Gemara class, here's Swimish class, here's Navi class, but I digress. What it takes for the implementation is a combination of the right educators, the right technology, people putting that technology into place, 
And all of that takes it takes a lot of money. Okay. It takes a lot it takes a lot of money. However, the investment on the front end versus the yield on the back end is incredibly profound. So if at the end of the day this was a fifteen million dollar project, the savings that could be realized both in keeping kids in school and the savings to families because the cost of education could be reduced and the overall systemic savings would be would dwarf that number. Okay. And that I number. guess I would be remiss if I didn't give people an opportunity to to contact you um, if sure. they want to get more involved with Kodachrome, um, either from funding or suggestions or speaking, and I didn't clear this with you beforehand, but at the end, if you'll give us an opportunity to put up an email or a website sure. or something sure. like that, that would be great. Sure. Thank you. Okay. Um, so so implementing it costs money. What, what about, you know, there's so many different moving parts with a the school. There's teacher buy-in, administrator mm-hmm. buy-in, mm-hmm. board buy-in. How do you do that? So each of those is different. Let's start with teacher buy-in. You start by identifying what the teacher's fears are. Number one, teachers don't want to become irrelevant. The reality is here that once a teacher sees this model in action, they will realize that they are more relevant. Fear number two is this is going to cut jobs. I appreciate that fear. At the end of the day, the Jewish educational system is going to have to create efficiencies, and yes, there will be less hiring. Um, teachers, you know, my best advice there is teachers that that position themselves to take advantage of these types of opportunities are the ones who will be well rewarded for doing so, and teachers that get left behind by these changes, it's terribly unfortunate, and we want to be supportive of everybody who goes into Chinuch and everybody who goes into Chinuch or went to Chinuch presumably for the right reasons, but the system has to survive. So the teacher fear of irrelevance, I don't believe, is justified. The teacher fear that jobs are going to be lost is justified. I don't think you're going to lose, you know, more than a quarter of the jobs, but there will be jobs lost. And, and you know, sugarcoating that is really not helpful to anybody, certainly not helpful right. to the system and the kids and the families. In terms of the families themselves, again, if the families see that educationally it's better and it's yielding, financial results, they're going to be fine, too. For boards, the boards and, you know, well, let's go to administrators before we go to boards. Administrators have the toughest problem because at the end of the day, the board president shouldn't and isn't going to be the one who scales teachers back. And the board is not the one who has to deal with the teachers on the front line and nurse them through their anxiety. So it's a very, very difficult position for administrators to be in. For the board, they have a different difficult position that they have to deal with, and that is they're running out of money. All the schools. All the schools are running out of money, and they know that. So somehow, and I realize that here we're asking for something which you know, hasn't always been easy, in particular in Jewish schools, um, the administrators and the board have to work together to support each other to make these changes, but the board has to be convinced and the parents have to be convinced and the administrators and the teachers all have to be convinced of its educational efficacy. If they don't believe that it's educationally an advance, they shouldn't implement it. Right, so fundamentally... Even though, even though we began part of the conversation after your educational bio and understanding that the system is in a precarious situation and it behooves all responsible parties to look at this incredibly seriously and to figure out how a small investment can make it sustainable for the future. Let's leave that comment aside, although that is a fundamental foundational comment. Fair? Mm-hmm. Fair. Okay. So, but as a administrator, as an educator, we have not been asked, nor are we asking anybody to say, okay, let's change education to sacrifice so it can survive. The argument is let's advance education so it works better for more students. Yeah, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a miracle. It's like we have to survive, and we can thrive and survive at the same time. It's an unbelievable thing. We so the, the crisis has created people. opportunity as opposed to the crisis has 
make, created painful cuts. Although I'm, I'm positive there are painful cuts everywhere for a lot of different people. But, uh, but here this, this is a unique opportunity brought upon mostly by a crisis. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it would be, if there wasn't a crisis, it would be a unique, exciting opportunity. Right. It would be exciting educationally. The push, the it's just, again, it's the convergence of these two factors that, you know, really make it just, we got to pay really serious attention here. Okay. So that's, that's exciting. And, and, you know, I know that you have both vision and direction in terms of, Making a lot of these things happen, it's scary to venture into uncharted waters. I, having had the pleasure of being in your office, I noticed that you're a big fan of, of Clayton Christensen. Yes. Can, can you share with the audience a little bit in terms of why and for those not yet familiar with him, mm-hmm. who he is? Okay. Clayton Christensen is a Harvard University business professor. Um, he's also a devout Mormon, and um, he developed – and economics, a theory of economics known as disruptive economics. What happens in disruptive economics is he, he wanted to study and understand why it is that when a new technology gets introduced into a particular industry, very often, or most of the time actually, the upstart technology swallows the old industry and the in- established players can't seem to adjust. For example, Polaroid knew about digital photography, but they got swallowed by it. Why is it that when a new technology gets introduced, it seems to swallow up the industry and the established players who have far more resources and arguably far more expertise can't seem to adjust? So his answer to that basically is that what established industries generally do is they'll take the new technology and try to squeeze it into the way they currently do business, failing to adjust to the fact that the entire business environment has changed and you can no longer hold on to the old way of doing things. So that's disruptive economics. Clayton Christensen then went out and applied it to education and basically said as follows. The possibilities that are laid open by both online, and here I'm using the term online, online education and blended education, the possibilities that have been laid open by that, most schools are just going to try to adapt by saying, okay, good, so we have kids who want to take, I don't know, they want to take AP environmental science, so we'll give them an online course. But more or less after that, we're doing business as usual. And what he has said is, that's not going to work because what's going to happen is that you're going to have this explosion of cheaper and eventually, and we're getting to that point, better education available outside of brick-and-mortar schools. And because of that, the brick-and-mortar schools are going to lose customers. And as they lose customers, they're going to have to sacrifice on educational quality. And as they sacrifice on educational quality, the competition looks better and therefore, more pe- even more people go over to the competition, and the competition now, which is getting increased funding and has more experience and is better refining their product, simply becomes better. It is very con- – uh, let, let's use universities as an example, because Clayton Christensen has a great talk about how this applies to universities. Okay, I, I am not alone. Many of our listeners share, you're not there yet, Arya, be happy, college debt. We are spending immense amounts of money to educate our kids in a four-year college. And why are we doing that? We're doing that because a four-year college is a ticket to a great job, and we believe in certain ideals of liberal arts or whatever it might be that, that drives us to do that. Okay. So here comes online education. And online education has done the following. Number one, it reduces costs dramatically. Number two, it increases accessibility to the best instructors dramatically. I can sit and watch Stanford University, MIT, Harvard professors from morning to night for free. So I can get the learning from the best people, albeit not in class. 
I can get the best learning from the best people at no cost. The problem, of course, is I won't have an educational degree. But the problem for the universities is that between the college debt and the job market, university degrees are not what they used to be. So now the universities are in a downward spiral. They've got a tremendous problem on their hands, including the universities who are doing the MOOCs. They're just the ones who figured out to get ahead of the curve as best they can. But they have a very For our audience, problem. I just want to translate MOOCs as a massive, massive online course. Massive open online course, correct. It's, it's, it's why there's 20,000 people taking a course at Harvard at the same time, because they do it online. Okay, so you have these universities now, which, oh, I'm sorry. So, so you've got, the degree costs a tremendous amount of money. The debt is there. The job market isn't what it used to be. And increasingly, and especially in tech market, tech type jobs, entrepreneurial type jobs, nobody cares if you went to college. No one. Google doesn't care if you went to college. They just want to know if you can do what they need them to do. So now the colleges are really in a bind because my college degree not only doesn't get me a job, but I can get a great job without a college degree. All I have to do is get the learning. So how do I get the learning? I go online and I get the learning. So, so there's now a big difference in between what I would call information hmm? and, and we'll call it skills, for lack of a better term. Well, if you really want to put it in its proper framework, I'll use a really, really dirty word from a generation ago. It's all vocational. The bottom line is get the knowledge, get the skills, get a job. Read Milton, Chaucer, and I don't know what else. Read that later. But I can sit at home and gain the expertise necessary to nail a job in the tech sector without ever leaving my house or paying, if no money, very little money. Okay, so that's, that's an example of how it's affecting at the college level. Now, we have a different situation in Jewish education. And the reason we have a different situation in Jewish education is that we are a values-based environment. And there are things that we wish to get across to our students that a personal relationship becomes is very, very hard to replace. Okay? I do not think that traditional high schools, you know, this idea that there's going to be a teacher and an interaction, I don't see how Jewish education ends up becoming a completely online entity. Sure. But much of it will. Much of it will. For example, schools pay a good AP teacher, let's say $15,000 to teach eight kids AP chem. They're not going to do that anymore. They're just not going to do that anymore. Or, or if they continue to do it, it affects their price structure. So if the schools continue to use the old model, their price structure is going to be unsustainable. And people are going to go elsewhere for that education because it's just not sustainable. So what schools need to do is to take a serious look at how can they use the enhancements of educational technology to stem the problem that the colleges are facing, which is it's too much money, and at the end of the day, you don't really need it. The advantage that yeshiva day schools, Jewish day schools have is we have something that they need, the families need and the kids need, that they can't get anywhere else, and that's community. We have a community, and we have role models in those communities. So there's an element to Jewish education, to values-based education, that is irreplaceable. But other than that, the rest of it isn't very sustainable economically and isn't great education. And schools need to adjust their model, ultimately, in order to meet that, or they're not going to have enough students, and they're not going to have enough money, and their education is not going to be sound enough, and they're going to close. Right. It does come down to, again, it comes down to offering a superior education. Offering a superior education, which can't be offered anywhere else because school culture can't be replicated by a computer. The one remaining implication, which I should mention, is that unfortunately, and this is very true at the high school level in particular, schools are not, as a rule, all that good at delivering great culture to their kids great opportunities, a great feel to the school. Kids love to come to school. They have fun. They enjoy the whole thing, okay, and therefore they want to be part of a religious community and they want to be part of, you know, the values that are being represented. Ultimately, it's it, it, if schools don't get that right, they're going to really lose students. That's what they need to get right, which is a great irony, is that from a recruitment point of view and a sustainability point of view, 
schools have to get better at the one thing they're really generally not that great at, and that's reaching every kid and making every kid feel like they're part of a community and they're safe and they're valued and their opinions are valued. That's a major paradigm shift for a lot of established schools. Right, have to change the culture, affect the culture. We we have just a couple minutes left. I wanted to remind everybody out there listening that you're listening to Tech Talk on the Nachum Siegel Network. Here I'm your host, R.E. Lightstone. You can listen to us on jmintheam.org or nachumsegel.com. As always, we are proud to be sponsored by our friends at Adorama Camera, more than just a camera store. Please check them out online at adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. And we've really been blessed, I think, to have Rabbi Elchanan Weinbach, uh, head of school, uh, education technology integrator. But when it comes down to it, you know, we'll, we'll sort of wrap up the conversation where we started it. Uh, Rabbi Weinbach was raised and, and, and uh, gained his first real professional experiences in a camping environment. And, uh, and we sort of began with the concept of culture and focusing on each and every kid, not just the... A students or even the B students, but each and every kid, uh, where they are and, and trying to figure out how to enable them to grow and to succeed, uh, in every way, shape or form. So in the, in the couple minutes we've got left, Rabbi Weinbach, would you like to share, uh, you know, ways to either enhance culture, uh, if, in the school, uh, or just other ideas that you'd like to share in the last couple minutes that we've got in terms of, uh, education technology? Yeah. I think in terms of ways to enhance culture in the school, I'm a, educational technology I've talked a great deal about, so let me talk about my other passion, if you will, which is Please. culture in schools. I think that we have to find a way to validate kids where they are. Very often what schools do is they say, we want you to look like and be this. And they come out with that, and therefore kids say, if I'm that, I'm good. If I'm not that, I might be able to fake, and if I can't fake, then I'm a rebel. There's no need for any of that. There really isn't. You put the adult role models in front of them who make sense to them, and included in adult here is a healthy dose of kids in their 20s and early 30s before they go on Aliyah. You take these great role models, you put them in front of the kids, and you... You, you let kids, if kids want to do this, find a way to say yes. And if they want to do that, find a way to say yes. Just get them involved in the life of the school, hanging out with people who they respect and connect to, and all the other messages will come via osmosis. Stop screaming the message in their face and giving them musr and telling them this is what you need to be and this is a good thing and this is a bad thing. Doing that en masse doesn't reach more than 15% of the kids, and it easily turns off 50% of them. Just create an environment and a culture in the school where the feel is the way you want it to be, and then you're going to get the two things you need most. Number one, you're going to get a situation, you're going to have a school where kids talk to adults about their problems. The worst thing in the world that I could wish on, you know, that you could wish on anyone is your teenager should only talk to teenagers about their problems and life decisions. And yet that's what happens in most school cultures. Kids aren't talking to their role models. And yet you'll say, oh, we, they're talking to their, go down your roster and ask yourself what your percentages are of kids who are really talking to somebody about what's going on in their life. In most schools, that is a small number. So very small, one thing you're going to get is you're going to get kids who are talking to adults about their problems, which is one of the biggest objectives of teenage education. The other thing that you're going to get is school is going to be fun. And that's okay. School's allowed to be fun. It can be hard and fun. It doesn't have to be hard and not fun. School is going to be fun. And because of that fun, kids are going to be motivated to stay in school and succeed and Wow, it's so easy to recruit for your school and get kids to come to your school when they see that it's a cool place where they can have fun. You know, and your students ultimately recruit, become the best ambassadors kids. for the product being sold. What? I'm sorry? This, your students ultimately become the best ambassadors for the product that your school is producing. And the reason is because the product's supposed to be the kids anyway. 
Make it right. about the kids. Stop making it about abstract ideals. Get the abstract ideals across. Derech Agav. You're teaching them in class day after day. You have plenty of opportunity to shape their worldview. But do it subtly. Get out of their face and do it subtly by creating a culture where they want to be around the school and they have role models who they connect to in a way where they don't feel they're being pressured. And and now I have to apologize. We've learned a tremendous amount from Rabbi Weinbach. Uh, this has been very informative. Wanted to remind everybody that they've been listening to Tech Talk on the Nachum Siegel Network here with Ari Lightstone, our guest for the full hour, Rabbi Elchanan Weinbach. Learned a tremendous amount. Special shout out and thank you to ZK for making this happen. I got to give an you an email address. Week. Thank, thank you, Rabbi. I got to give you an email address, please. DJ oh, please. Weinbach at gmail.com. One more time, Rabbi. E.J. Weinbach, like Elchanan, E.J. Mm-hmm. as in the letter J, Weinbach, W-E-I-N-B-A-C-H, at gmail.com. I am most happy to talk to anybody and continue this conversation and try to advance Jewish education. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi.